You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting when the evening comes, watching the ships roll in. Then I watch and roll away again, yeah I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Hello and welcome to episode 51 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. I have another special one for you guys this time around. It was uh, I know I said I would cover issue 45, but I'm going to be doing that next episode. Instead, I have a real treat for you. Uh, I was had the opportunity the other day to sit down and have a great conversation with Doug Murray, who is the writer of these issues of the NOM that we have been covering. He has some great things to say about his experience in the war, his experience writing the, the stories, and really what he put into the NOM. And, and uh, I found it fascinating and interesting, and I really hope you will too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break, plug a couple of podcasts, and when I get back, it'll be me and Doug Murray talking about the NOM. Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Star Trek Comic books Mythology Video games Toys Star Wars just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode is a special one because I have with me the person who is responsible for the stories that I've been covering on In Country since episode number one. Uh, he is the series writer and creator. Uh, please welcome Mr. Doug Murray to the show. Uh, how, how are you doing today? And uh, thank you once again for coming on. Well, it's my pleasure, Tom. It's uh, it's nice to speak to you. And like I say, uh, I'm kind of flattered that you're doing all this work on on a comic book I did back in the uh, 70s and 80s. Well, I'm, 80s and early 90s, yeah. I guess. I'm I'm flattered that that you were uh, you were nice enough to come on because this is this is something. This has been a real treat to do the show, and it's and, and I'm I've been really looking forward to this interview. Um, so right before we went on, we were talking a little bit about uh bit about kind of life outside of, of comics and stuff. And, and my first question was, um, I know I found out you and I are both from Long Island, in fact, uh, from not too far away from one another. Uh, yeah. and my sister actually lives in Amityville, so that's not even that far from where you were. Um, it's, it's funny because when I was looking to buy a house before I got married, uh, one of the houses I looked at was the Amityville Horror House. Oh, uh, 112 Ocean <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> it was a little too expensive for what I could afford at the time, but it was a great house. Yeah. You know? It had it was it was big. It had it had a pool, a bath, uh, excuse me, a boathouse. Mm -hmm. An ideal for me, but I just couldn't just couldn't couldn't make the money work. Yeah, it's in a great location. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, so uh, you were you were born. You were telling me you were born in Brooklyn. How did you um come to because you wrote the Nam uh, at least from your own experiences being in Vietnam and. Uh, how did you come to be in the Vietnam War? How did you come to be in the service uh, during the 60s and early 70s? Uh, I was lucky, I guess, uh, is a way, I, one way to put it. Um, I was in college uh, and I played basketball and I broke my ankle playing basketball. Uh, now, that wasn't necessarily a huge thing, but I had made the mistake of um, 
taking uh, more courses a year than I needed and going to summer school because I really had nothing else I was doing. So I had enough credits to graduate uh, when I broke my uh, ankle in 67. was 67. Uh, I had, had a drop out of school for a semester while I healed. And during that semester, the local draft board in Lindenhurst uh, drafted me. Uh, this was... Uh, they were drafting like 8,000 people a month from the New York area. That was the uh, the quota. Uh, so I went to, uh, because I was planning to go back to school, I still had a semester to go. Uh, I went to try to uh, appeal to the draft board. And the draft board, uh, I got my notice the day before Thanksgiving, and they were on vacation until the week after New Year. And I was ordered to report before they came back from vacation. So but I couldn't do anything. So mm-hmm. I ended up I ended up in the Army, basically. Uh, on, uh, I, I took all the tests and crap and, um, I was slated to become a port artillery observer, uh, and a port artillery observer in 1968 had a lifespan expectancy of about 17 weeks. So, um, I took an option and, um, instead of being a draftee, I became a regular army enlistee. I gave them four years instead of two. Mm -hmm. In return, I was to be sent to the the college and the the school in Fort Bliss and become a air defense radar specialist. Uh, and I was guaranteed a year of being being stationed in uh, Fort Tilton, New Jersey. Uh, well, Fort Tilton, which was, I guess, the easiest way to put it, if you know Brooklyn at all, it was right by Rockaway Beach. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was a Nike Herc site. It was an air defense artillery site. Well, I went to the school and I got through basic training. I went to the school in Fort Bliss. Uh, Fort Bliss had a policy whereby the top student at the halfway point of the course got a str- got promoted one one level, and the top student at the end of the course got promoted one level. I was top student at both ends, so I went from a uh, an E2 enlisted two to an E4 uh, and got out of the school. At the same time, uh, somebody in the military complex came up with this radar system that was supposed to be able to track a mortar around on the rise so you could, you'd could you know where to shoot for counter-battery fire. Mm-hmm. It had to be tested, and they wanted to test it in combat. But the table of organization didn't allow for radar specialists to go to Vietnam. Uh, so the Army came up with a, a way around it. Uh, they took the top four graduates from the graduating cl- the class, the radar class, and before they gave us our new MOSs, we were still 16 Bravos at the time, mm-hmm. uh, they sent us to Vietnam to test the radar, along with an NCO and an officer. Um, the officer and NCO got killed the first week we were in country uh, in a rocket attack, and I ended up in charge. And uh, we tested the radar, which was crap. I should I should rephrase that. It worked perfectly if there was nothing between the radar and the mortar. Um, the the tube. Uh-huh. Uh, if there was anything there, uh, trees, leaves, grass, anything at all that disturbed the view, it didn't work. Okay. So basically, if if you if it could see the tube when mortar around first came out, it could give you a track. But if it couldn't see the tube, it couldn't. So I sent in the results and I sat there waiting for orders to go home. And uh, at the time, I was in a place called Fubai, which was north of Da Nang. Mm. I was theoretically attached at 108th artillery. And uh, our commanding officer uh, saw this. At this point, I'd gotten another stripe. So I was an E6. I was a Sergeant E6. And saw this Sergeant E6 sitting around with nothing to do. So he started sending me out on patrols. And I had a bad attitude on patrols because I shouldn't have been there at all. Uh, So my priority became get everybody back in one piece and screw the results. So I was really successful. Guys trusted me because they knew I'd do everything to get them back in one piece. Uh-huh. So I, they kept they kept extending me because I was doing these patrols and coming back, and giving them results, and nobody was getting killed. So I ended up staying there for the better part of a year. Uh, finally got uh, got shot up a little bit, uh, had a leg messed up. Got back to the states. Uh, ended up as an instructor at Port Jackson for a bit while I was healing. Then ended up at Fort Tilton for a while. Uh, then got sent to Korea. And uh, while I was in Korea, the same radar came back for another test. And there I was in Korea. <laughs> and they sent me back to do the test. Uh-huh. And it still didn't work. <laughs> so uh, I spent another three, four months in country. And then uh, I got out of the military entirely. Okay. And that was, you got out in 72? 
Early 72, yes. Um, and so how did you go from uh, service in the military to uh, being a comic book writer or, or, or a writer in general? That's a little more complicated. Um, I started writing when I was, I guess, 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a huge co- uh, movie fan, loved science fiction and fantasy horror films. I had an uncle uh, whose son hated that stuff, so and my uncle loved it. So anytime a new, new horror film opened up, he'd take me, because otherwise he'd look like a fool going to a horror film. He'd take a kid, and his son didn't want to go, so I, I was elected. So I love that kind of stuff. So um, when Famous Monsters of Filmland came out in 1958, I was a huge fan. Mm-hmm. I started writing letters to Forey Ackerman, who was the editor, and Forey um, started to encourage me to write something so, write something for, for Famous Monsters. So I did an article for Famous Monsters, I guess it was in 1960, which is probably before most of the people listening to this podcast were born. Mm-hmm. Um, that led to a couple other jobs, and then I started uh, generally doing film reviews and stuff through the 60s. I was an editor at Monster Times. I worked for Jim Stranko on Stranko's media scene. I was editor there for a while. I worked on a magazine called Millimeter and a magazine called Take One. Did lots of stuff about films. Um, I had limited comic book stuff. I was a comic book fan because I grew up reading comic books, but I'd never really thought of myself as a comic book writer. Uh, I helped out a friend and I ghosted some Brave and Bowls uh-huh. uh, briefly in the, in the late 70s. Oh, really? Yeah, but basically what happened in the in the 60s, going back a step, when I was still in the Army, before I got out of the Army, when I was stationed in New York, yeah. I, got invo- I got involved with Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a fanzine called Heritage about Flash Gordon in 1971 or so. Okay. And Neil did a story for it. So did Mike Kluder and Jeff Jones and a lot of those guys. I was really good friends with a lot of those people. And uh, when I got out, got out of the Army, uh, Neil offered me a job briefly at the studio. Uh, he was doing these uh, storyboards for Ford Motor Company commercials. And basically, he hired me to just come in and read through the scripts and break break things down so he could do the storyboards. I was there for, I don't know, a year, 14 months before I started working for Chase. Um, in the studio, uh, they, they basically let out space in the back rooms for, for young artists who were, were trying to get work. And one of those young artists was Larry Hama. And ha- Larry and I became pretty good friends. Um, fast forward till 1985 or so, and Larry is now an, uh, one of the senior editors at Marvel. Yeah. And he wants to do Savage Tales again, and he wants to do stories about the Vietnam War. And he knows me, and I'm a Vietnam War vet, and he knows I can write, so he offers me the job. And so suddenly I'm a comic book writer. And at the same time, a vice president at Chase Manhattan Bank. <laughs> um, so I did that for quite a while. Um, I did the Nam. I did uh, the Merc. I turned down Spider-Man, which was really a smart. Oh, movie. really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I I've done a bunch of stuff at a bunch of different companies. Um, at one point, I made the decision that I was making about the same amount of money at the bank in writing, and writing wasn't going to kill me, but the bank probably was going to give me a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So I came. I quit the bank job, became a full-time writer, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. Uh, now I've read a story about um, how the Nam came about. I know that you were attached to it because of your work with Savage Tales and uh, you were doing Savage Tales with Michael Golden at the time, I believe. Right. We did, I did five stories for Savage Tales of which only four have ever seen print. Okay. And I know one of them was reprinted in issue eight. It was the tunnel rat. The tunnel rat story. story. Never, it's never in Savage Tales. That was supposed to be in the next issue of Savage Tales. Okay. So basically because that, that story existed, it had already been drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry asked me if I could find a way to make it work, and I just wrote the wraparound, okay. uh, which I thought worked out okay. Yeah. The story, I've, I've, in just doing background research when I was starting the podcast, one of the stories I read was involved uh, of the origin of the actual comic, the nom. It was Jim Shooter giving Larry Hama a cover, like basically saying, giving him a, a, a I think it was like a Mike Zek G.I. Joe cover, but with the words the nom across the top of it and saying like, you know, do this comic. And I don't know how true that is. How did the nom come about, or at least from what you recollect? Keep in mind that I didn't work at that Marvel comic. Okay. So to the best of my knowledge, it happened like this. Savage Tales came out with the NAM stories. Uh, the NAM stories got the bulk of the mail for the Savage Tales issues. Mm-hmm. Although the magazine wasn't selling well, they were getting lots of mail about the Vietnam stories. So, um, 
Haman and Shooter, and I don't know who talked to who first, but basically they came up with the concept of doing a Vietnam comic. Okay. And then they approached me, if asked if I would write it. Golden was already penciled in as as the, the artist. And of course I said yes. I was I don't know if I was confident in being able to do it, but I was pretty I was confident in working with Larry Hama, let's put it that way. And I was happy with I, I never had problems with Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter was great ever, with me all the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, and he backed the project fully, which was amazing at the time. Uh, and when it came out, it was just an enormous hit, uh, way, way more than I ever expected. I mean, it sold 325,000 copies of the first issue, which made us the second leading seller for Marvel that month, which was behind X-Men. So, you know, it just uh, it just happened that way. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot to do with the with the actual selling the concept. That was Hama and Shooter. Mm -hmm. I don't know went to who, but they were responsible for it. The the book being a success seemed to have come as a surprise because war comics were kind of on a decline. I know that over at DC, Sergeant Rock was probably canceled within a year or two of, of when this came out. How did, did you remember how you reacted to the success? Did you feel any pressure, uh, you know, as this book was selling an enormous number of copies uh, right out of the gate? I, I don't know if pressure was the term. I know war comics were considered passe. Mm. Uh, the uh, the aftermath of the Vietnam War uh, was a very anti-war feeling across the U.S., especially amongst young people, which were basically the comic book buyers. Yeah. Uh, they, they were then college students in that. So the fact that the the, bag, the comics sold well enough to do a second printing on the first issue and just kept selling well was just a shock for all of us. I mean, I never expected it. I figured I was going to do seven, eight issues and that was going to be it. Uh, and Hama figured we'd last a year, mm -hmm. and and here we were selling 320,000 copies, uh, which was just astonishing. So um, I, I I don't know if I felt um, I get I guess I felt a responsibility to keep the work at a certain level more than anything else. Uh, Hama had come up with the concept of doing real time, okay. which gave me. Um, a problem in research because if I was going to stick with one unit and a couple of individuals in one unit, yeah. then I had to find something that went on in the vicinity of that unit at the right time to make it fit story-wise if I was going to be true to the form. And I did that for, God, the better part of three years. Uh, it wasn't until um, I got into editor number three uh, where he didn't want to do real time and he didn't want to do real stories. He mm -hmm. wanted to get superheroes in and do stuff like that. But that's going forward a ways. Yeah. Um, how hard was that research when you didn't, I mean, this is what, 87, so you don't have... There's no internet. It's yeah, there's all no internet. Um, how tough did that become when you were trying to research that specific unit? That it wasn't as bad as I expected. The advantage I had was that I lived in New York, mm -hmm. and I had the, the Strand Bookstore and lots of other outlets where it was easy for me to find material. Uh, I found a couple of really good histories of the war and was able to basically, I wasn't pulling stories as much as I was just pulling incidents and building stories around incidents. Okay. If I had tried to pull, you know, directly historical references for a specific patrol or something, it would, it would have been, it would have been impossible in that time period. I would have had to be in the library of Congress and pulling out, you know, uh, original material. Yeah. So basically I was just looking for a report on, the 25th infantry being in a certain spot, and then I could do a story about a patrol, or you know, make uh, take something from my experiences, from experiences I'd read about or people I knew, and make a story out of it that way. So uh, that's the way I made it fit. So how did Ed, Ed Marks come about um, as our our main character for like the first year of the uh, of the book? Ed Marks is is me in a lot of ways, in that I was incredibly naive. Uh, I mean, I had never gone more than a few miles from home when I first went into the Army. The first plane trip I ever took was when I went to Fort Jackson to start basic training. Uh -huh. So uh, Ed Marks is, is a kind of a representation of me going into a completely alien kind of uh, situation and, and trying to learn how to survive inside that, that situation. Um, so I, I try to reflect... Uh, me at 19 or so, which is when I first went into the military with Ed Marks, who was supposed to be 19 or so when I started the stories. And you had you only had him in there for a year. And well, that's how the average tour was 14 months. So yeah. if it had been longer than that, it would have been it wouldn't have been true to the concept of real time. 
Yeah. And then, then you started introducing other characters. What was the challenge in that? Because you have readers who have really attached themselves to somebody, to Ed. Um, and now it's because it's very, very rare that your protagonist leaves a, the ongoing comic after, I don't even think anybody did that after, you know, a year's worth of stories with the, when the, when the series is going to go on. It, well, again, it was a question of being true to our original concept, which was to show things the way they actually happened and play it in a real-time basis. Real-time told me right up front that I was going to have to switch protagonists every every year or so. Uh, so I, I had prepped some, some other characters as we went along. We got to do 10, 11 and had somebody ready to come in. Um, it was it was going to be a bit of a shocker for the, the audience, but I, I kind of thought that they would be, if they were mature enough to go with the stories, because the stories I was doing weren't your typical comic book stories. I thought they'd be mature enough to handle, okay, this guy's going home and, and we're going to have to deal with the people that are that are staying and, and go forward like that. And I, I on the whole, the way the mail came in, and I saw all the mail, uh, nobody was all that upset. They kind of understood what we were doing and they weren't they weren't bothered by it. They all wanted me to do something with Ed Marks later. Mm-hmm. And, and I did have a finale um, plotted out. As I, I tell people, I had I have I had a finale, which I still still do, that I would have done uh, showing Ed Marks going back to Vietnam as a, a newspaper, uh, a news excuse me, a news TV producer, uh, in 19 you know 1975 or 80, uh-huh. and seeing the difference in the country and visiting the places he'd been in and doing uh, something for American television and and doing a revisiting that way, but also closing down of the whole war. But it just never happened, so it doesn't really matter. Issue number one comes out before um, Platoon, I believe. Right. I, I think I looked that up, actually. And, and so it's it's not a case of Shooter or Larry Hammer or somebody going out and seeing that movie and coming back and say, we should no, do we this. Predated, we predated the Platoon. Yeah. I think the issue came out a couple months before Platoon did. Yeah, and then, and then we have a string of movies in like 86, 87, 88, up until about 89, 90, which is like a, it's another Vietnam movie era. Um it, it, I was wondering, it probably might have helped sales a little bit, but did did it uh, did did seeing those affect you as a writer, or were you able to keep your kind of self kind of separate from that and focus just on what you were doing as a as a writer on the non? To be honest, I found those those films. Um, what, what, how shall I express, express this? Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opening of Full Metal Jacket uh, in basic in the basic training camp is really good. Um, most of Full Metal Jacket is completely unbelievable to a Vietnam bit. It doesn't look like Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It looks like it looks like Manchester, England, which is where <laughs> they shot it. Yeah. Uh, the only scene in that film, which my wife tells me gave me trouble because she was sitting next to me when we watched it, was when they are doing the fight at the bridge, when nobody can see anybody and they're shooting in the dark yeah. and there are whistles. We used to do we used to do command uh, commands by with whistles sometimes in the field if you didn't want to be if you didn't want to be able to be spotted. You can't tell where a whistle comes from. So you do a series of whistles. And my wife tells me I was twitching when guys were doing little whistle signals in the film. Um, Platoon, I thought, was, uh, even though Oliver Stone's a vet, I thought Platoon was, um, uh, what's an easy way to put this? I thought Platoon was pandering. Uh-huh. I, thought, I thought Platoon was the uh, Hollywood studio guy's idea of what Vietnam was like. Okay. With the bait killing and the burning of villages. And I was never a fan, a fan of Platoon. In fact, uh, a Vietnam Vets group did a couple of awards in 86, mm-hmm. 87. And uh, Platoon and NAM were both up for the best visual, uh, the best, what do they call it? Graphic representation of the war. Uh-huh. And, and the NAM won. Uh, and I got, I went, I went, got to go eventually got to go to the presentation at first. Marvel didn't have any money cause they'd spent all the promotional money on the Spider-Man wedding at Shea stadium. Oh, uh, but the people in the, in the marketing department finally got up enough money to fly me out to uh, LA to accept the award. Uh, Bill William Westmoreland was the guy uh, giving the award uh-huh. and it gave me a, a, a chance to meet some other, some other interesting people. Uh, so I got some stories out of it, but, uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, most most Vietnam vets are not huge fans of Oliver Stone's view of the war. I don't say it's completely wrong, I, uh, but I it, it kind of bothers me because it's so similar to the propaganda coming from the anti-war group in that time period. The comic itself, there's um, throughout the uh, throughout the run on the comic of yours, there are some scenes that are grisly in parts. 
Um, I remember there's a, a couple that come to mind. There, there's one early on that that Mike Bolden drew that was it was a slaughter of they come across they come upon uh, a village of people who have been I think they've been slaughtered and a lot of them have just been kind of tacked up. Mm. Um, and then there's later on uh, that Wayne Van Sant drew. It was. I want to say the title of the issue was Huey City of Death, but it it's this massacre in a church. Um, and I, I see a lot of the commitment to showing things as they were, you know, realistically in terms of the action. Did you run up and against the comics code on any of it? Because it was a code approved book, which was for, for a code approved book, it was pretty uh to me it seems like it was pretty daring. Um did they we, give you any problems at the time? Not, not as such. Um, Larry and Larry was pretty good about guiding us around the worst of the problems. And we had made the decision right up front that it was going to be a code approved book because had we done it as a, as an epic type book, it would have really, um, severely cut down on our potential audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, a a huge amount, a part of our audience, at least half the books were sold in newsstands. So we were getting people to walk into a newsstand to buy stuff. Uh, so we were pretty careful. The only time we ever had a problem with the code that I can remember. I think it was issue five. Uh, Golden does a cover. That's the one where there's a couple of uh, Vietnamese guys and there's a post and, and one of the guys is kind of tied or tacked or yes. uh, hailed to the post. Um, the original cover is way more graphic than that. Um, and yeah, way more graphic, believe me. Uh, so uh, Golden redrew it. But um, even as it stands now, if you really look at it closely, you can see that there's an intestine hanging down there. Oh. That's not, not too obvious, but it's there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was, there were things that we knew because we had decided to make this a, uh, both a comic book store and newsstand book that we were going to have to deal with. And it was, we were going to have to play by a certain set of rules. So uh, we were careful about drug usage. We were careful about cursing. Um, I had, uh, that was, those were the things that I knew going in, we would have to be careful with. Mm -hmm. I could have done it as an epic book. It would have, would have probably lasted a year. Okay. So it was a, it was a, it was a worthwhile trade-off I thought. Yeah. Um, I, I do have some specific questions about specific issues, things that have stood out in my mind to the 44 or so issues I've, I've covered so far. Um, 43 of which was yours. Cause I know one of them was a, was a Chuck Dixon fill in, um, in issue nine, you have, uh, Mike Albergo, who was the sort of, uh, kind of the sidekick for Ed, the guy oh, who yeah. kind of, it's almost like his, like, Ed attached himself to him and, and, and Mike was the one who kind of held his hand a lot. And he's, and he, 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 he dies very, very closely to being, um, to leaving. That struck me as one of the most powerful issues of, of the series at that point. And it seemed that, that readers, uh, that readers responded. What do you remember about the response to that? And, uh, especially killing a main character like that off so early. Well, I was going to do that regardless. Okay. Um, and it was because I was trying to be realistic and guys died. It was just the way it was. Uh, it was pretty normal for, especially uh, in infantry outfits, for a newbie to be paired up with a with a vet just so that he could learn the ropes. It takes a little time to learn what you're doing. Um, Mike Albergo, I'll tell you a weird story, uh, which says a lot about uh, Michael Golden. Uh, Mike Albergo is based on a real pre person. Uh -huh. I like to use real names, not necessarily people that correspond to the names, but real names, because uh, it's easier than doing made-up names. Ma made-up names always seem made up to me. So I use <laughs> real names. Mm -hmm. and Mike Albergo was uh, one of my brother's uh, friends, uh, who was at the time uh, going to high school with my brother. And I described him uh, basically as a tall, gangly guy. Uh, and uh, when Golden's pages first started coming in, Albergo in the comics was identical to Albergo in real life. Oh, really? It was astonishing. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as killing him off went, I had decided almost immediately, I guess, uh, that, that if I was going to have a core group of people that I was going to follow around Marx, then one of them was going to have to die. Because at the time uh, I was dealing with, I think that was uh, supposed. To, I guess that was around 1967 Vietnam time, or early 68. Yeah. The uh, that was the attrition rate. It was about one in four, one in five. So somebody was going to have to go, and I didn't want to do a Sergeant Rock type heroic, running into en enemy fire, shielding the other guy, yeah. that kind of. Thing. I wanted to do it more the way things happen in real life, where just a shot comes out of nowhere and takes a guy out. Um, we got a lot of mail on that, on that, and it was it was. 
it was interesting mail because people were were thinking about what that meant um, more than just reacting. How dare you do that? It was more like, okay, that was unusual. Why did you? Do they, they was I got a thoughtful group of replies, but it was a lot of replies. And uh, it again, it was one of the things that kept me convinced that the people reading the book were actually reading the book and paying attention rather than just scoping through the pictures. Yeah. And you were answering a lot of the letters yourself, which is not something I normally was normally used to seeing in a comic book. Usually it was like the editor or assistant editor. Was was that your decision to, to answer letters? And, and, and what did you get out of that? Because I've the letter columns are some of my favorite parts sometimes of of some of the issues where uh, where there's some really good conversation going on between you and the fans. I, I kind of um, Hama offered me the option uh, of either answering the mail or not, as I wanted when we started to get mail in. And I thought it was considering that the subject matter was what it was and the the uh, the slant of the book is, was what it was. I thought it was only fair that if I take the time to answer the letters, to read all the letters and answer them. So I did. Uh, and I always had enough letters where I could choose some good ones for each issue. I didn't have to resort to, oh, this is the greatest book in the world. I hardly ever did that. I, I went with the stuff where somebody had a question or a concept. The ones that always made me feel the best were the, and I got a lot of them where people would say, my dad was in Vietnam and he never wanted to talk to me about it. And I showed him issue number eight and he was, you know, and he, he looked at it and he kind of started talking to me about something that happened to him. That stuff always made me feel great. So it's one of the things that kept me really happy with doing the book. Uh, issue 15 is, is the, I think the first one where we see Ed and he's at home and I remember you were responding to letters in that for like f way beyond what you would normally expect in a comic book. Most of the time it's like, okay, this letter column's about this issue and then the next issue and, and so forth. But this is the one where Ed's on the cover. He's in, I guess, the airport and there's this very kind of large hippie woman turning around and yelling at him. And, it's, and a big part of it is his letter from home to Rob Little over in the mm -hmm. NAM. And it seemed to generate an enormous amount of response and debate. Uh, why do you think it struck such a nerve with the readers at the time? Um, what do you I, I, think, I, th I don't think that the average reader in 1986 understood just how badly treated the vets were coming home in 1968 or 69 or 70. And I, um, in fact, uh, a very famous comic editor slash writer who I shall not name, uh, was certain that one of the characters on the cover of the book was meant to be her. Not, uh, and and uh, we got this horrendous, we got this really nasty note uh, from her, from her company. And it was, I never had that in mind at all. And mm. Wayne no, didn't know who the hell she was. So she, he didn't do it. Uh, but it was, it was kind of her response was exactly what, was the kind of thing that happened at the time, but the younger readers didn't have a clue as to what that was like. And that was why we got, we got, a, a, we got a lot of letters about that. And I, I tried to kind of explain it, but I don't know if I ever really did it properly. Um, how difficult was it? Because the Vietnam War, um, even still is a, it's a, you start talking about it. It become, it can become a very hot issue for a lot of people, especially politically. And, at least this is my interpretation of, of reading your stories. You tend to try to keep the partisan politics out of it. Um, how difficult was that? Um, I would be a lot harder for me to do now than it was then. Uh, I was deliberately trying to make it as non-political as I could because uh, when I was in the military and in Vietnam, I wasn't thinking of it in political terms. I wasn't thinking in terms of you know, this guy sent me here, or this guy sent me there, or we're, try we're, we're, we're killing these people for oil, or we're killing these people for whatever. I was there because I was defending my country, and my country had asked me to be there. And uh, I was, in a way, proud of being there, in a way, scared of being there. And uh, I wanted to put that across without using the, the, the kind of, I guess, the, the far too easy uh, political line of, of, you know, these guys are right. These guys are wrong. I didn't want to do that at all. Mm -hmm. So I tried to avoid that. Um, I think the big, biggest problem with the Vietnam War, which we've seen uh, at first when the Gulf War happened, I thought that we had learned the lesson of the Vietnam War. But as time has progressed since then, I've decided that we haven't. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
We still have wars that are being micromanaged by somebody in the White House. We still have wars for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it just uh, it's sad. Uh, in 1968, I was proud to go over and, and put myself out there for my country. And I wouldn't do it now. I would I would I would not do it. And my feeling about the people that went to Canada is probably different because of that. Mm. Um, and and with the, the political side of things, you were talking about how um, earlier we were talking about Platoon and, and Oliver Stone and the uh, the scenes in that movie that depict uh, something on the on the level of something like Me Lie, which mm. in issue thirty five you have a very short conversation between. Ed Marks, who at that point I believe is at Columbia studying yeah. journalism and a, and a journalist friend. And he, he gives this very long explanation of how the, the, inf- the unit he was in is different from the unit that carried out me lying. And, and I was, I, and I did this on air. I was wondering if that was in response to any reader questions, if people were confused over the 23rd, 25th here and the 23rd or 25th there. And, and, uh, or if they were wondering if you were going to explore something like Milai or, or whatever, because that is one of the things that a lot of people do remember about the war. Well, clearly because of because of my because of the the concept of the book, the fact that it's real time and it's about this one unit, there's no way for me to cover Milai at all. Yeah. Uh, because they can't be involved. So the little conversation was just because Milai happened that particular month in the book in book time in in book yeah. time. So I had to do something about Milai, and I couldn't show Milai. So that was the, the the closest thing I could do to dealing with it. Uh, it's the same way I, I deal, dealt a little bit uh, during Tet uh, with what was going on in Saigon. I, I had to play games to get certain high. I hesitate to use this word, but okay, certain high points, important points uh, in terms of the newspaper and TV coverage of the war, uh, to depict them in some way in the comic. And if they weren't in the twenty fifth area of operation. So that's the way I went about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. You seem to do that with, um, the democratic national convention in Chicago through, I think it was a letter from, um, pig's younger brother to him or, or a younger brother home. It was, it was through a letter where you were able to show what was going on in Chicago, even though all of our main characters were. Yeah. Once I, once I stumbled upon that idea of doing that through a letter or through some a newspaper or something, I, I used it in situations where I felt I had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you had, as, as your run, as your time in the book went on and, and you were introducing some characters, having other characters go, having other characters be killed. Um, it seemed like a lot more of our protagonists were people who were a little more seasoned in terms of, they weren't as um, wide eyed as Ed Marks was when, well, when you first that, Because that was pretty much the, war, the way the war worked. Uh, as the war went on, you got more and more people who were people who had been there before or on a second or a third tour or people who were coming over for the first time but had seen all the TV coverage and all that stuff. So they had a better idea of what was going on than you did. If, if you came in in 67, 68, you really had no real concept of what the war was like. But if you came in in 70 or 71, you had a much better idea of at least the media's version of what the war was like. So your reaction to the real the war itself would be different, and I, I that was what I was trying to depict. Did did the readers relate as much to those characters as they could to Ed? Because Ed was a very good entry point. Because if you're somebody like me, who if I was reading this right off the stand in '87, I would have been 10 years old, and you know, or had I picked it up, you know, later on as a teenager, I would have been. If I was the same age as Ed, I would have been as naive as Ed was going in. Did readers respond to say Ice or Pig or? I got, I got a pretty reasons. good response to both uh, to Iceman and to Clark later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but keep in mind that at that point, uh, with issue 17, somebody in um, somebody higher up in Marvel had made the decision that this book was going to be direct sales only, which uh-huh. meant it was only going to be sold through comic shops. Now, at up to that point, uh, we had been selling almost almost equally half and half newsstand and, and direct sales, and so basically we threw we we gave up half our audience. Uh, with that decision, uh, almost immediately too, and it reflected in the sales figures. So um, there was there was a, a kind of a, a slump, if you will, through some of those issues when things were were changing both at Marvel and uh, in my life and what was going on. I mean, at, at that point, uh, Hama was gone. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my second editor, Pat Redding, was great. I love Pat. She was Larry's assistant, and she moved on. And my third editor was. 
a different story. Okay. Uh, he and I never got along, and there were issues between us uh, right from the start. So, you know, things change, and that's that's why things change. Yeah. Um, you did have a kind of what I noticed through the, especially like through the third year of the book, is that you started to do these. Um, it wasn't a long story arc, but almost these story beats that lasted a year. And one of the biggest ones was these racial tensions that kept popping up um, among characters like Williams, uh, Bacon, I'm trying to think of some of the other names because there's a lot of characters and, and their response to how they're treated as, you know, because they're black as opposed to everybody else. And um, I guess the, the basic question would be like, you know, where did, where did that come about? How did, you know, how did you decide to integrate that into the, into the story and uh, still make it easy for a audience, which was obviously younger than, than like, you know, you were to understand, you know, the nuances of, of, of that. I, I it just had to be told at some point, because there were certainly uh, any number of, uh, of uh, racial tensions and situations in Vietnam. And they became worse in that time period because they were worse back in the States in that time period. I had to deal with it one way or another. So I, I, I you know, I chose to deal with it. Um, I don't know if I'd say it was a full arc. I mean, it was something I, I had decided to deal with at some, to some degree. I mean, uh, it, it just was, was relevant to the situation I was trying to depict in the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had, uh, you had an issue with superheroes in it. I know that at some point after you leave, we get the Punisher. Right. Which so, Well, the superhero issue was my response. Mm-hmm. Uh, this third editor, who I will not name, but it's easy to figure out who it is. Uh. Um, he he uh, essentially uh, didn't want to use the real-time aspect. He didn't want to use the aspect of one unit. He wanted me to make it into Sergeant Rock, pretty much. And uh, I didn't want to do it. And he was pressuring me to put in superheroes and I didn't want to do it. So I wrote that issue just to show him how stupid the idea of putting superheroes in the NAM was. Um, and the readership got it, but he never did. So that was that was just me saying, hey, you, hey, you, this is you're thinking about this completely incorrectly. And here, this is why. And he never got that. Yeah. I mean, personally, I love the issue. I think it's a great commentary on superheroes and the complexity of that war which is you know personally from what i've read is a lot more complex and is a lot more of a gray area than say world war ii was when captain america for instance first appeared um and i like how you tied it into i don't remember the character's name but the character who kept reading comic books yeah another one it's been a while though it's been three years since i did these so yeah and he had died um, his name was start with an A and I'm blanking. Um, but he, he had recently died and it was like, I think the story was like Iceman was leaving and he picked up the comics and that was the framing device. Right. Um, there's maybe one letter or two letters, um, about that issue. And I was curious about how the fans reacted because, you know, when you go back to issue eight, you go back to Albergo's dead death in nine, and then you go back to, uh, the issue we were talking about with 15 where, where Ed Marks is home and you have this l- lingering debate in the letter column back and forth between you or reader to reader. People responding to letters and stuff, but there's like one or two letters about this. Um, you said the readers got it. Was there was there any tension among their readership about that or, you know, how? Not, not a whole lot. Remember, the readership was substantially smaller then and um, – they, they were not commenting on it too much. And by the time most of the comments would have come in for that, I was probably in the process. Uh, that was around 46 or 47 mm-hmm. issue number. And around 50 or so, I moved. And uh, and at that point, basically, uh, my my that was editor number three. And my contact with them was very limited. And uh, so, I, I mean, that may have been all the letters I ever got on that issue. Okay. And I know you were done by issue 51 or two. Something like that. Um, he had hired, uh, well, he had brought Chuck in to do those two uh, do issues with the uh, Punisher without me knowing about it. Okay. Uh, Chuck has apologized to me about that a lot over the years. He and I have buds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was unaware that I was unaware. Uh, let's put it that way. And uh, I was already having too many problems with this guy to deal with. And so basically, I just basically walked away. It just was it wasn't worth 
the stress and hassle of having to deal with an editor who couldn't write and couldn't draw and couldn't tell you what he didn't like, but knew that he liked it a certain way that wasn't the way you wanted to do it. So that it wasn't worth my time at that point. Um, did you read the book after that was? I don't think so. I have probably have the issues, but I don't think I've ever read them. Um, and had you stayed on, had you kept the real time earlier, you were hinting that you would have gone into the seventies brought Ed back. Did you have any other plans for, for what you would have done? Had you, um, you know, had you not run up against this and had you been able to kind of keep the, I wanted, I wanted to do more about the home front. Uh, I want, because that was a time when things were really hot on the home front, when we had all these huge, uh, marches and, and, and oh, near riots about the Vietnam War and all the political issues. I wanted to get into that somewhat. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get into some of the the really uh, young troops who were turning up there in 71, 72 with the old modern volunteer army when they, they had no clue what they were getting into and what, what happened to them. That would, that, would have, that would have been the sort of thing I would have dealt with. But again, it just never happened. So it's, it's not worth worrying about. Um, because my next question was just out of curiosity, what do you think happened to Ed Marks? Just where, where do you think I, he is now? <laughs> I had always thought Ed Marks would become a journalist uh, in the in the tradition of Bill Maudlin, uh, who did William Joe, and that uh, he would have covered the war for a newspaper or a TV station. And if he was around right now, he'd probably be covering, uh, you know, Ferguson and that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, so you've done this. Uh, like I said, you stopped you stopped the you started the book in 87. Um you were done with the book about 90, 91, and the book itself was done. I think issue 84 came out in 93 or early 94. So it's been 20, 25, 30 years since, uh, since you've done it. Uh, you look back on it, what are you most proud of? And what do you think the legacy of at least your run uh, on the title is? I'm kind of proud of just getting it done at all. I mean, it was so different from anything anybody else was doing when I first did it that, uh, and the fact that it was successful is something I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of the first 12 to 15 issues. Cause I think they're like the best we did. Uh, we were, we were, we were breaking new ground all the time. And I thought that we, we did it pretty well. Um, I'm sorry that we, I would have been happier, I guess, if I could have done it a little more realistically, if, if the comic code, it had to be done as a comic code book, which yeah. is unfortunate because if, if it could have been done a little a little more openly, it might have been I better be able to do a little bit more. And I'm I've always been sorry I never got a chance to finish it off because I would have loved to have done the ending. Uh, it's odd because I find myself writing that same kind of thing right now. Uh, I've been doing these uh, ebooks mm-hmm. uh, that are on Amazon about um, a couple people from SEAL Team Six. I've done 12 of them, 12 novels about it right okay. now. And I just, uh, just did something just, so it's, I guess, I guess it never goes away. It's an, ex- the experience gives me an insight, which I guess I can put on paper, which is what I've, I've made, you know, I've, I've been able to do for many years. Uh, and if, if people wanted to find your work now, um, aside from what's been collected in the non, because I know that the, um, Marvel has collected, and recollected uh, at least the first, I, about the first thirty. Or so. Yeah, um, and and uh, some of them are out of print, but most of them I think are pretty available uh, either through Amazon or in stock trades or something. Um, if there's is there anything else that you've worked on over the years that you're working on now that uh, that you wanted to to point out so people can go ahead and, and check um, it out? I'm pretty happy with these novels. Uh, I just did a new one which is I'm self-publishing called Call to Duty, which is. Uh, a modern day kind of a, a military techno thriller. I'm working on book two in that series now. Uh, Amazon has like four pages of my stuff. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I worked for Disney for a while, worked for Lucasfilms for a while. So I've done a lot of weird shit over the years. Uh, but a lot of it is available on Amazon in one, one format or another. Or another. So, uh, you know, you can always find that stuff there. Okay. And, and what I'll do is I will put a, uh, uh, usually the post has a, there's a blog post that goes along with this. I'll put a link to that so people can uh, can just link through the site or, or through Facebook or whatever. So they yeah, can I mean, them. you can tell you can tell people. I mean, I'm on Facebook and they can they can contact me. I, I do answer questions. I, I there's a, a local Vietnam reenactors group that I, I occasionally give advice to. So you know, oh. it's uh, I'm out there. I'm not that worried about people finding me. Well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on it and taking the time in the afternoon this afternoon to to do this with me. This has been. Uh, Really, really interesting and uh, really fun, and and I'm very, very happy I I got the chance to talk to you. So thank you very much. My pleasure.
And uh, I would like to thank uh, Mr. Murray for his time sitting down and talking to me. Um, it was really, really great. He was a great guy. He was very, very nice. Uh, in the show notes for the show, I will put links to Amazon and, and what he's been working on, as well as uh, links to where you can buy some of the trades of the NOM and some of the other stuff he's been doing. Uh, so you can check that out. Come back in two weeks. I will be restarting my look at the issues of the NOM, starting with issue 45 of the series and carrying it straight through to uh, probably about like issue 55 or 56 over the course of the next 10 or 12 issues. So until then, thanks for listening and take care. I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Sitting on a darker bay, wasting time.